It's time for Shattered Soulstone. Featuring the latest news from Sanctuary and beyond. Each episode, a heroic party of Nephilim band together to help keep you informed on everything in the Diablo universe. And now, your Diablo Community Podcast. Coming to you from somewhere in Sanctuary, this is episode 404 of Shattered Soulstone, your Diablo Community Podcast. This episode is called Missing Beta. It is April 1st, 2023, and this is Jen. I have absolutely no April Fool's jokes for you at all in this entire episode, so don't worry about that. That's not going to happen here. What I do have for you is a number of things I've collected over the week or so um, that are relevant to all of the stuff I usually talk about. So here is a thread from a better ABK, the ABK Workers Alliance, and they wrote this on March 19 on Twitter. On February 13th, Activision Publishing announced in a quarterly meeting that their employees would be returning to the office in April. Similarly, Blizzard announced that their employees would return to the office in July. ABK leadership has stated there will be no exceptions to this return to office mandate, though they did encourage employees who cannot return to the office for various reasons to email the accommodations team. However, many employees' requests to continue working from home have been denied, and those applying for medical accommodations haven't been able to get much traction on their requests either. It is our firm belief that ABK leadership has enacted this return-to-office policy for several malicious reasons, the first being a quiet layoff. Many employees were hired to work remotely and, as such, may not live near offices or took this job because it offered the ability to work safely during the pandemic, which is still ongoing. Many of these employees will be forced to quit because of this policy. The second reason is to drive out union organizers and supporters. Many involved in the push for unionization belong to marginalized communities such as LGBTQ+, women, racial minorities, disabled, and chronically ill. I fit some of those, um, and I don't work there, though. Uh, A return to office for these folks could mean harassment or even illness that could result in death or further disability. To enact this policy with no regard for the personal situations of hundreds of employees is an incredible disservice. Not only will this policy result in a large amount of attrition as folks leave for other workplaces that are hiring remotely, but it also does an immense amount of damage to the DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion policies that we as a company have spent time developing. This heavy-handed policy will do damage to our workers and our products and is wholly unnecessary when we have the monetary ability to allow employees to work from where they choose to. We chose to express these concerns on our leadership to our leadership in an open letter where we took time to explain in depth the ways in which this policy would affect our businesses and employees. However, leadership chose to respond to this open letter in a dismissive manner, even going so far as to claim that joining a union would give no guarantees that employees could work from home. Following the uh, return to office announcement, many employees were understandably devastated and took to company Slack channels to express their situations with anger and panic. ABK leadership responded to employee concerns by firing several employees who chose to express their dissatisfaction regarding 
returned to office with colorful language. Employees were given no warning, as would typically be the process in this situation, and were fired outright. We believe this is a gross misuse of power, and it directly goes against our core value of every voice matters. CWA has filed an unfair labor practice regarding these firings, and we eagerly await its outcome. Until then, we will keep holding our leadership accountable and fighting to make our workplace safe, a safe one that is free of harassment and retaliation. So that's what they had to say about it. And it always bugs me when there's a company that has workers that might be immune compromised or might be, you know, have some very fragile things happening with their whatever's wrong with them. Um, like I have fibromyalgia. If I worked for Blizzard, which I do not have any any of the skills needed for this at all whatsoever, and I'm not going to try, there will be days where my body decides to be in too much pain and I can't do anything. You know, some of these people that worked for, you know, ABK probably might be among those who have these types of disabilities that you can't control and that there is no cure for and things like that. To tell everybody, no, you have to be here every day, especially people that have been working from home from maybe other states and things like that and can't just, you know, find the money to pick up and move to California to be in an office where, you know, possibly they're not even using COVID control stuff anymore. That would be very dangerous for a lot of people. So I'm going to back up the, you know, ABK Workers Alliance here because you just can't decide for yourself as a company whether or not your choices are good for your employees. Like, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to, like, take care of people and things like that. If they can't do it, then maybe you need different people in charge and someone can do something about that, like hire somebody better. I don't know. Then we have Code CWA, who on March 31st wrote this on Twitter. Huge victory for workers against Blizzard Entertainment. Uh, and they tagged at Blizzard underscore entertainment union busting. The NLRB is moving forward and prosecuting Blizzard Entertainment for illegally surveilling workers organizing with We Are GWA Albany and We Are GWA, threatening to disable chat groups used by organized workers. And there's a statement here. And the statement says, statement from Communications Workers of America, quote, the Region 31 of National Labor Relations Board NLRB has found merit with several elements of the unfair labor practice, practice charges filed by the Communication Workers of America, CWA, on behalf of workers at Blizzard who faced illegal coercing, intimidation, and silencing by their employer in August 2022. The NLRB is moving forward and prosecuting Blizzard for engaging in illegal surveillance of workers organizing in Irvine and Albany and unlawfully threatening to disable standard communication platforms as part of the company's ongoing union-busting campaign. This egregious behavior by Blizzard is yet another example of the company using its platforms and tools to coerce and intimidate workers exercising their protected right to organize. These actions, coupled with Activision Blizzard's illegal firing of workers speaking out about their working conditions and and several other unlawful actions shows a clear pattern to disregard the law in an attempt to silence workers. CWA has filed numerous additional pending unfair labor practice charges against Activision Blizzard to hold the company accountable for its illegal union-busting tactics. In spite of Activision Blizzard's anti-union efforts, workers continue to organize, speak out about their working
working conditions and win union campaigns. Activision Blizzard must end their illegal union-busting tactics, allow workers to freely exercise their right to organize and commit to negotiate a fair contract with union workers. So that's what they had to say about it. And I think it's good that that code CWA is standing up for the workers because clearly they're not going to get this on their own. You know what I mean? They need enough people to unionize. They need enough people to, you know, have, you know, a safe way to do that. And if, if what's said here is true, that Activision Blizzard is, you know, not doing the right things, I mean, these people need a union. Let them do it. On a different matter, we have a thing here from the United States of America Federal Trade Commission. It was filed on March 21st, but it didn't go public until fairly recently. And this has to do with, in the matter of Microsoft Core, a corporation, and Activision Blizzard Inc., a corporation. And there's some stuff in here about this. It's very much legal ease in some ways. I'll read you some of the stuff. It's not incredibly long. It's just kind of like tedious, you know, legal speak kind of stuff. So I'll give you a little bit of this. Part one says this, and I'm not reading the whole part to you. On March 8, 2023, Federal Trade Commission, FTC, Complaint Council filed a motion to compel respondents, Microsoft Corps, and Activision Blizzard Inc. to produce documents. Specifically, Complaint Council seeks a whole bunch of different paperworks in here. Um, and let's see, uh, compelling Microsoft to comply with a number of requests and then directed Microsoft uh, to something else, compelling Activision to comply with a bunch of other requests. And it goes on from there. The complaints council motion is granted in part and denied in part. Pursuant to commission rule, something a bunch of numbers, quote, parties may obtain discovery to the extent that it may be reasonably expected to yield information relevant to the allegations of the complaint, to the proposed relief, or to the defenses of any respondent. Discovery shall be limited if the administrative law judge determines that it is, quote, unreasonably cumulative or duplicative, or the, quote, burden and expense of the proposed discovery outweigh its likely benefit. Goes on a little bit from there. In the instant dispute, respondents do not object to the requests on the basis of relevance. Rather, both Microsoft and Activision resist discovery on the grounds that the requested discovery is duplicative and or unduly burdensome, as more fully explained below. So here's kind of more of what's going on. And again, I'm not reading you the entire thing, but everything I talk about, for the most part, will be in the show notes at ShatteredSoulStone.com as soon as we get this episode done and, and published and all of that. So here's part A is called Common Objections by Microsoft and Activision. And this is, again, from the FTC. That's the American uh, Federal Trade Commission that checks up on things like this. So here's some of what they wrote. Microsoft and Activision both object to searching for or producing documents in response to complaint counsel RFPs on the ground that the RFPs seek documents that are duplicative of documents requested and produced during the pre-complaint. Pre-complaint. It's a pre-complaint. Now's your complaint, I guess. This is weird. Investigative phase of this matter at the outset the fact that similar document requests may have been issued during an investigation does not prevent complaint counsel from exercising the right to take discovery in the litigation. Goes on from there. And then to the extent respondents are proposing such a broad definition of duplicative RFPs, the argument is rejected as unsupported and unpersuasive. Moreover, to the extent there may be overlap between some of the second request specifications and the RFPs, complaint counsel states that it is not asking respondents to 
produce any documents that have already been produced, and that it has famed, framed its RFPs and its search terms with reference to the investigative record developed to believe to relieve respondents from the responsibility to even search for and identify responsive documents based on the similarity to investigative requests would improperly allow respondents to unilaterally determine the scope of relevant documents. In addition, based on a review of the second request specifications upon which respondents rely, respondents have failed to justify denying discovery on the ground of duplication. For example, Microsoft RFP3 and Activision RFP2 both request documents related to cross-play. It is undisputed that the second request specifications did not include a specification related to cross-play. Respondents argue instead that these requests are duplicative of the second request specifications because the term cross-play appears thousands of times in the documents it produced in the investigation. Goes on from here. There's also as part B is alleged undue burden objections. Microsoft asserts that it has identified and produced more than 2.5 million documents responsive to the second request specifications as refreshed. Though the date of the through the date of the complaint, these documents were identified and produced pursuant to a technology-assisted review, which is called TAR technology-assisted review protocol that was agreed to between complaint counsel and Microsoft. Microsoft argues that the Complaint Council's request that Microsoft respond to the RFPs by re-searching Microsoft files using specified search terms is unduly burdensome. Goes from there. Furthermore, the record shows that Complaint Council is willing to revise the TAR protocol for use in this litigation, including to reflect Complaint Council's requested search terms and offered to do so, but that Microsoft did not agree. Activision. Activision asserts that it has identified and produced nearly 1 million documents responsive to the second request specifications as refreshed through the date of the complaint. Activision states that it agrees to run the search terms as requested by complaint counsel. Accordingly, this portion of complaint counsel's motion is denied as moot. Activision argues that Activision's RPFs 1 and 2 are unreasonably burdensome, as evidenced by its second request production containing hundreds of thousands of documents responsive to these requests. Moreover, Activision asserts that its review of a random sample of an addition of additional documents that Activision would need to review per complaint counsel's proposal shows a low responsiveness rate for RFP2 and that therefore requiring a further search and view and review is unjustified. Uh, moreover, the estimated cost to Activision sites for complying with these requests is not on its face unreasonable. In summary, respondents' remaining objection to complaint counsel's RPFs are rejected. As explained above, complaint counsel's motion is denied in part as moot and otherwise granted. And then there's a bunch of things that they're ordering. One of them is that, okay, respondents are not required to produce any documents that have already been produced. No party may rely on or submit as evidence in this case any document that was not produced in discovery. And there's some other stuff too. This is uh, from March 21st, but it just got released fairly recently. There's an article here from Tweaktown, which, if I remember correctly, Red October put into the Shattered Soulstone Discord. So thank you for that if you're listening to the show, because I would have missed this one entirely otherwise. And it's on, as I said, Tweaktown. It's under gaming. It says, Judge orders Microsoft, comma, Activision to comply with FTC document requests. Written by Derek Strickland. 
And uh, here's what the blurb says. FTC administrative law judge orders Microsoft and Activision Blizzard to comply with document production requests made by the FTC's complaint counsel. An administrative law judge, and it's kind of the same sentence there. Uh, recent filings indicate the Federal Trade Commission is having trouble getting specific documents from Microsoft and Activision. FTC complaint counsel, the lawyers representing the FTC that seek to block the merger, filed a motion to compel production of documents. Statements from the FTC say that Microsoft was largely uncooperative and, quote, have refused to produce anything at all for 24 requests. Microsoft and Activision Blizzard Council argued against the motion and said that the requests, known as RPFs in this context, are duplicative and unduly burdensome because they'd require the companies to re-review millions of documents previously deemed least relevant. The, the respondents, Microsoft and Activision, argue that Complaint Council has received 17 million pages in a massive second request. There's been specific language used to describe Microsoft and Activision Blizzard's compliance with the discovery requests. Discovery in this case is another word for the massive information gathering portion of this process, including terms like restraint and many cases of or instances of refusal. Counsel for the respondents also highlighted a deal they made with the FTC's complaint counsel, as well as specific portions of this process. Under the deal, Microsoft would use its technology-assisted review to produce documents. The FTC wants Microsoft to re-search uh, using specific search terms, a process Microsoft argues is replicative, difficult, and expensive. And now administrative law judge Michael D. Chappelle has delivered another order on the motion. I kind of read you some of that. There's a little bit more in here if you want to check it all out, but that's what's going on with the FTC and Microsoft and Activision. Axios written uh, wrote an article, uh, Stephen Totillo, author of Axios Gaming, wrote this article titled, 11 members of Congress argue Sony is unfairly hurting Xbox in Japan. Here's a little bit from that. Members of Congress from both sides of the aisle are pressing the Biden administration to take action on PlayStation Xbox console competition in Japan. Do I think the Biden administration is going to do that? No, I don't think they will. Uh, driving the news, policymakers raised concerns last week to Biden officials saying Sony's business practices in its native Japan are blocking U.S. companies from competing in that country's gaming market and could be running afoul of U.S.-Japan trade deals. Now, that part I hadn't considered, so I guess we'll wait and see what the Biden administration wants to do or not do with this thing. The unexpected pressure became public on Thursday when Senator Maria Cantwell, Democrat from Washington, pressed U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai on it during a trade hearing. Ten members of the House also sent two letters on Thursday to Tai and Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, urging action. What they're saying, quote, Today, we write to bring your attention to the imbalanced Japanese video game market, which we are concerned may be a result of a discriminatory trade practice that could violate the spirit of the U.S.-Japan Digital Trade Agreement, states one of the letters signed by four Republicans from the House, including Carol Miller, Republican from West Virginia, and Mike Carey, Republican from Ohio. Here's some little points from that. The Republican letter alleges that Sony PlayStation has 98% of the, quote, high-end console market in Japan, end quote, signs deals designed to keep hit Japanese games from Microsoft's Xbox and says such moves, quote, may violate Japan's antitrust laws. Another part from the group of Republicans, total of four of them, 
Quote, the Japanese government's effective policy of non-prosecution when it comes to Sony appears to be a serious barrier to U.S. exports with real impacts for Microsoft and the many U.S. game developers and publishers that sell globally but see their earnings in Japan depressed by these practices. The letter continues. A letter to Tai and Raimondo from six Democratic lawmakers from Washington State where Microsoft is based covers similar ground. The big picture, the heat is on Sony. Is the heat on Sony is unmistakably coinciding with the Japanese company's own pressure on antitrust regulators to block Microsoft's sixty-nine billion dollar bid to buy Activision Blizzard. Here's some stuff. Quote, Sony's anti-competitive tactics deserve discussion, and we welcome further investigation to ensure a level playing field in the video game industry, Microsoft spokesperson David Cuddy told Axios, where I'm reading this from. While Microsoft isn't saying just how involved it was in orchestrating this push, its government affairs team has discussed these issues with members of Congress, Axios understands, and Sony reps did not reply for a request for comment. There are two letters at the bottom of this page. I assume one is the uh, Republican one and one is the Democratic one. I'm not really sure which one is which, but you can read them both because everything will be in the show notes at ShatteredSoulStone.com. We also have the Japan Fair Trade Commission who wrote a thing and uh, it's a press release, so it's it's there and it's titled the JFTC, Japan Fair Trade Commission, reviewed the proposed acquisition of Activision Blizzard Inc. by Microsoft Corporation. This was done on March 28, 2023, so not that long ago. It's kind of short. It's got some, you know, little like series of numbers and like defining what Microsoft and what Activision Blizzard are and things like that. But I'll read you a little. Receiving notifications regarding the proposed acquisition of Activision Blizzard Inc. by Microsoft Corporation and Activision Blizzard and Microsoft are here and after collectively referred to as parties. The Japan Fair Trade Commission, going to be known for the rest of this as JFTC, reviewed the transaction and reached the conclusion that the transaction is unlikely to result in substantially restraining competition in any particular fields of trade. Accordingly, the JFTC has notified the parties that the JFTC will not issue a cease and desist order resulting in the completion of its review. So here's a few things. Uh, Overview of the transaction. The parties plan the acquisition of Activision Blizzard by Microsoft through the acquisition of shares and the merger. Reviewing process. They gathered some shares and mergers and stuff like this. Conclusion. The JFTC concluded that the transaction is unlikely to result in substantially restraining competition in any particular fields of trade. There's a footnote in here. There's like a waiting period and all this stuff. But basically, it sounds to me like they're like, yeah, okay, go ahead and do that, which is different from what it sounds like the United States FTC is doing. Windows Central has an article similar to this. Yet another major regulator has ruled in favor of the Xbox Activision Blizzard merger. It's Japan's uh, FTC comes for the ABK deal. Here's what you need to know. Who wrote this? Let's see. Jez Corden for Windows Central. I'll skip the bullet points and go into the article itself. Another potential hurdle has been cleared in the big Xbox Activision Blizzard merger. Microsoft is trying to buy up Activision Blizzard, known for Warcraft, Candy Crush, and Call of Duty, despite stiff opposition from Sony PlayStation. Increasingly, it's looking likely that the deal will go through ever since the notoriously difficult UK 
uh, CMA reduced its scope of concerns this past week. Now another important regulator has also spoken up. Japan represents the world's second largest gaming market after the United States by some metrics and has been resurgent in recent years owing to the runaway success of Nintendo, PlayStation, and other publishers like Capcom and From Software. Microsoft has a minuscule market share in that region, but has recovered some lost ground from the disastrous Xbox One era. I don't know what happened there. Um, anyway, recently Xbox has managed to corner some major Japanese franchises such as Yakuza and Persona by leveraging Xbox Game Pass. Microsoft now has an opportunity to grow in Japan potentially, given that Japan's Fair Trade Commission has essentially ruled in favor of the deal. Uh, via translation in the documentation, it appears that the regulatory body found that the deal would not substantially reduce competition in Japan. And it goes on from there. There's a little bit about the FTC in here, so I'll give you a paragraph from that. Interestingly, this past week, U.S. Congress members complained that Japan's FTC was actively turning a blind eye to PlayStation's potential violations of antitrust laws by paying to block out Xbox versions of games in the region. When comparing just PlayStation and Xbox, Microsoft's council only has a 2% share in the region, despite being active in the market for 20 years. The secrecy around licensing deals makes it hard to actively place blame, but the lack of investment in first-party content during the Xbox One era is undoubtedly a major factor. Microsoft has an opportunity to interest new users via Xbox Cloud Gaming and the more affordable Xbox Series S, which I have one, uh, both of which have reportedly seen some success in Japan and nearby markets. And it goes on from there for a little bit. And then we have Bobby Kotek. So Kotaku wrote this uh, on Tuesday. This is written by Luke Plunkett. Bobby Kotek calls out PlayStation in email to whole world. Here's the blurb. This is obviously disappointing behavior from a partner for almost 30 years. As we grow closer to the finish line in the months-long struggle for Microsoft to buy Activision Blizzard, things are getting tense, governments are getting involved, weird promises are being made, and the people at the center of it all, like Activision CEO Bobby Kotek, sound like they're starting to feel the strain. Which might explain why earlier today, Kotek sent out an email to his entire company and then posted it on the internet for the whole world to see which does little but bang his head against a wall, repeating the same arguments Microsoft, Activision, and now select U.S. politicians have been making for months, that the deal is fine, that everything is cool, that Microsoft has made, quote, thoughtful, generous remedies to address regulators' concerns. One thing stands out in this email, though, and it's a section where Kotek has to juggle maintaining a business relationship with Sony while also wanting to throw them under the bus. Let's see how he fared. And there's an emphasis in here that the author put in. So this this is from Bobby's writings. The good news is regulators who initially had concerns about console competition are starting to better understand our industry. The data and evidence Microsoft has been presenting are tilting the scale. You may have seen statements from Sony, including an argument that if this deal goes through, Microsoft could deliberately release deliberately buggy, buggies in quotes, versions of our games on PlayStation. We all know our passionate players would be the first to hold Microsoft accountable for keeping its promises of content and quality parity. And all of us who work so hard to deliver the best games in our industry care too deeply about our players to ever launch subpar versions of our games. Sony has even admitted that they aren't actually concerned about a Call of Duty agreement. They would just like to prevent our merger from happening. This next 
next sentence is in bold. This is obviously disappointing behavior from a partner for almost 30 years, but we will not allow Sony's behavior to affect our long-term relationship. That's the part that the author here pointed out. It continues, PlayStation players know we will continue to deliver the best games possible on Sony platforms as we have since the lost the launch of PlayStation. And uh, this writer says, in other words, it's not me, it's you, and kind of goes on from there for a little bit. Video Games Archive also wrote something about Bobby Kotek. This one is written by Tom Ivan. It's titled Activision CEO Bobby Kotek says Sony's disappointing behavior won't damage their long-term relationship. And let's see if there's anything new in this one. Uh, looks like it's kind of the same in here, but I just noticed this other one over here and I'm gonna grab that real quick because it's also from Video Games Chronicle and it's from March 29th, which is fairly recent. Blizzard's games were reportedly pulled from China after Activision felt NetEase threatened Bobby Kotek. It's claimed Activision believed NetEase could attempt to scupper Microsoft's takeover bid. This one's written by Tom Ivan as well. A potential misunderstanding, which left Activision Blizzard executives feeling that CEO Bobby Kotek had been threatened by his NetEase counterpart, reportedly contributed to the company pulling its games in China. And that's according to the New York Times sources who have claimed that simmering tensions between the long-term partners over a license renewal came to a head during a conference call last October. During the conversation, which was conducted at times through translators, Activision executives reportedly felt that NetEase CEO William Ding had threatened to sway the Chinese government to either block or support Microsoft propose, Microsoft's proposed acquisition of Activision Blizzard depending on the outcome of the negotiations. Other sources told the publication that this had never been NetEase's intention and was, in fact, simply a misunderstanding. NetEase spokesman Alexandru Voika also denied that Ding had tried to intimidate Activision, which he said was continuing to, quote, harass and taunt companies and regulators worldwide. Further talks following October's conference call were failed call failed to heal the rift that had developed between the companies. Activision Blizzard, which has been licensing agreements with NetEase since 2008, pulled its games from the Chinese market in January. The move left local players unable to access titles, including World of Warcraft, Hearthstone, Warcraft 3 Reforged, Overwatch, the StarCraft series, Diablo 3, and Heroes of the Storm. And it goes on from there. That's pretty interesting overall. I did not know that had happened. Game Rant wrote this, Microsoft now considered more likely to successfully complete Activision Blizzard acquisition. This is written by J. Brody Shirey, or Shuri, I'm not sure, about five days ago. Here's a little bit from this article. Microsoft is now closer than ever to completing its landmark acquisition of Activision Blizzard and its many studios and IP, at least according to financial insiders. This massive buyout was one of the biggest gaming stories to come out over the past couple of years, as it means that major franchises like Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, and Overwatch would be brought into Microsoft's Xbox umbrella should the deal successfully clear. This planned buyout follows Xbox's purchase of Bethesda's parent company ZeniMax Media and with it ownerships of franchises like Elder Scrolls and Fallout in 2020. Not everyone has been on board with the idea of Microsoft acquiring yet another mega publisher in the form of Activision Blizzard, and there have been several challenges to the deal by competitors and government bodies alike. The loudest opposition to the buyout has been Sony, who claims that the Activision Blizzard buyout would cost PlayStation access to the highly lucrative Call of Duty franchise if it carries through. Microsoft has argued, of course, that this would not 
not be the case, yada, yada. Um, in light of the UK's Competition and Markets Authority's recent findings regarding Microsoft's planned purchase of Activision Blizzard, experts are saying that the chances of the deal closing soon are higher than ever. City CITI recently raised the uh, probability of Microsoft completing its purchase of Activision Blizzard from 50% to 70%, as noted by analyst Jason Baznet via Seeking Alpha. City also raised Activision's stock price target from $88 to $91 to reflect this increased likelihood, which Baznet explained as Activision being, quote, a very low-cost call option on the Microsoft transaction gaining approval. It goes from there a little bit. Seeking Alpha has an article here. Microsoft's chances of closing Activision deal raised from seven, raised to 70% from 50% at City. So this is probably about the same thing, but I'll put them all in the notes anyway. And finally, I have some Diablo stuff for you. So um, I'm going to go over my experience with the beta and the open beta. The, uh, the, <laughs> the first beta I played so long that I got really exhausted from it because I was putting all of my energy and all these hours into gaming that I don't typically do that long. I played a barbarian the whole time. It was really fun. And I liked running into people that were just out in the world so that we could like fight a mob together, that kind of stuff. I thought that was really fun. In the next one, I continued with another barbarian for just a little while to see if there was any differences between the first beta and then the open beta. And I didn't really notice too many differences at all. I noticed, I think, a couple of glitches or something, but nothing big that stood out as, okay, that's a problem kind of thing. And then I started playing a necromancer and oh boy, those are overpowered. And I had so much fun with it in the time I had left to play. I did have a problem with actually accessing the open beta because the Xbox S that I have, it knew that I was in the previous beta, but it didn't seem to understand that I was, you know, supposed to be able to also get into the open beta. And I had to like look up things online to see how to get around this weird little glitchy problem. So what I did was unplugged the Xbox for a while, plugged it back in, and then I got into the game. There wasn't a queue for me this time. It was very short. It said like a minute and then I was in and I was able to mess around with both of those classes. When Diablo 4 launches, I'm probably going to play a Barbarian to start with, but I'm also really interested in the Necromancer. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and I'm going to take my time with it because I don't want to burn out on the game right away. I know a lot of people are going to be pushing hard to get as far as they can like you know day one but that's just not me i don't have the energy for that for the most part so that's that's my little you know experience in there uh this article is from ign diablo 4 review in progress updated beta impressions this dev devilishly hypnotic arpg is extremely impressive so far this is written by travis northup on march 29 and i'll read you a little bit about it he's got a lot of pictures of the necromancer in here so you can guess what he played uh, he wrote, as I pour one out for my recently deleted Diablo 4 characters, who I spent dozens of hours nurturing and exploring alongside, I find it astounding that someone with my anemic attention span is still so excited to jump back in when the full version comes out in a couple short months. Having focused on the Druid and Necromancer classes during the second beta weekend, this one opened to more than those just willing
willing to buy an appropriately unholy chicken sandwich, I'm more convinced than ever that this hellish action RPG is on track to deliver something truly special. I continue to adore its build crafting system, the joy of spontaneous alliances that its online model allows for, and the surprisingly engaging combat, which is made even better with the new classes in play. The new classes, the Necromancer and the Druid, are already among my favorites right out of the gate, he writes. The Necromancer is a maniacal commander of the undead, and mine felt immediately overpowered thanks to his gang of skeletal warriors that draw aggro, tank bosses, and deal decent damage. But once you gain other powerful abilities like the insanely deadly Bone Spear or the ability to make corpses explode, it becomes downright stupid. Every dead enemy becomes a resource to be spent expanding or healing your zombie ar army or turned into an uber-powerful landmine, which in turn creates more corpses to be used. It's the circle of death. The fantasy of raising a private militia and making atrophy and death your wicked allies is wonderfully realized, and once I got aboard the dastardly train, the necromancer was all I wanted to play. Fighting groups of enemies usually amounts to calling shots from afar while your skeletal minions keep them busy, giving you plenty of time to use your most deadly powers that becomes even more effective when paired with control abilities like Decrypify, which slows all enemies caught in its web to a crawl. It made each battle feel like I was a military captain calling shots from atop an overlook, smiling as the enemy fell before me. There's more to it than that, but I'll leave you with that part. And then Forbes has something written by Paul Tassie, a senior contributor. And the title of this one is, I've seen enough. The Diablo 4 beta indicates it'll be a massive hit. Here's a little bit from that article. Before anyone screenshots my last two Diablo 4 headlines and puts them side by side, I think two things are true. First, I think for at least a decent portion of the player base, the Diablo 4 launch is going to be rough on the technical end, given the amount of problems I've seen in the beta, even if this is a stress test. It's not just server queues, but disconnects, heavy lag, rubber banding, crashes, and more. But once those are resolved, the content of the beta has indicated to me that yes, this game really was as good as it looked in trailers and blog posts, and as such, it's going to be a massive hit. I think Blizzard nailed most things here, judging by how addicting Diablo 4 is already, even in early levels, even with nothing approaching endgame builds, even with barely scratching the surface of the story. If I had less self-control, I would have maxed all five beta classes, and the only reason I didn't is because I knew they'd all be wiped out when the game launches in June. Technical problems aside, and my issues with the desire to make every aspect of this game online only, even after all these years, I still just want a damn single-player version I can pause. The rest of the game is shaping up to probably have a better launch than Diablo 3 itself, which took around until its Reaper of Souls expansion to truly fix, fixes in quotes, itself, and become the high-quality entry it was meant to be i don't think i will take diablo 4 i don't think it will take diablo 4 that long and he goes on from there there's some nice pictures in here too so um that's kind of fun you know that's kind of neat and um, i'm missing the beta you know i want to jump back in and play it some more but it's gone and i assume my characters are gone and that's fine um i like that i was able to get into it the uh the first one man i had a long long wait time and then it rolled over into nothing and then it gave me a longer one and i was like no <laughs> you know but i got in there and um i'm definitely gonna play the barb i'm definitely gonna play the necromancer and at some point i'll probably end up playing all the classes because i did that with diablo 3 so why not diablo 4 i did see online and i don't have this in the show notes because it'd be a little hard to explain but there was a map put out that showed here 
highlighted is the section that you were playing in in either of the betas, and here's the rest of the map. And it was just amazing how much stuff there is to, to explore, and I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, you know, I, I, I miss the beta, you know? I think most of us do, and we'll have to wait until June to catch up with, you know, the real thing. And that's where I'm going to end this show. You have been listening to episode 404 of The Shattered Soulstone, your Diablo community podcast. Missed an episode? You can find the show blog and listen to the show archives at www.shatteredsoulstone.com. Come join us in-game. Our in-game community and clan, both named Shattered Soulstone, are open to anyone who would like to join. You can also join us on Discord for the ultimate team and community-based experience. Find the Discord invitation link on our Twitter and Facebook page, as well as the Shattered Soulstone website. Thank you for listening.